went for the big dog cities. He went for Ephesus, he went for Corinth, he went for Rome because he knew if you capture the heart of the city, you capture the heart of the world. Cities are valuable in the eyes of God. Think about the way the Bible ends. The Bible does not end with a scene of all of us floating off up in the heaven. The Bible ends with the scene of the city of God coming down to earth. So cities are in the heart of God. So I love the theme this summer of studying um, of cities in the Bible and how they specifically how they affect MacArthur Park's influence in San Antonio. I want to read you a line from one of Doug's emails to me that I love. The line says this, how the light of God interacts with urban humanity and what MacArthur Park Church of Christ can do for our city. That's a great theme for summer. We're going to start with Babylon. And so if you have a Bible, turn over to Daniel chapter 1. That's where we'll begin in just a moment. I need to tell you about this picture that you've already seen on the screen. So a few months ago, a group of friends and I were in a small group on it at Memorial Road. Normally we do a Bible study time and prayer time, but this particular week we decided to take a break and we were going to go do something fun. So we chose to go to main event. Are there any main events around this area? Okay. So we went to main event, we were playing around. Well, at one point we began to get a text message with this picture, which here's what's going on. We're about to play a game of pool billiards, and I had gone up to get the pool sticks, which happened to be at the bar. And so my friends saw this as a great opportunity to blackmail the preacher at a large church of Christ. And so uh, one of my friends, Jacob, snapped this picture without me knowing it, and then later in the evening, he texted the picture to me, and it, the captain said, Phil, be careful, I can blackmail you any time that I want. Now, I show you this picture to ask the question, what exactly is the tension in a picture where a preacher is at a bar? Now, a couple ways to answer that question, what I'm going to get at is, the tension of this picture is, how exactly is a Christian supposed to engage culture? There are certain forms of culture which are great, there are certain forms of culture with which are sinful, and, and a question that many people wrestle with is to what extent should a Christian engage in culture at large? And I think that the greatest place in the Bible to answer this particular question is the book of Daniel. Because what you find in the book of Daniel is you find Daniel and his friends have been transported from Israel into this pagan country, and they have to wrestle with how do we be the people of God when we are in the greatest pagan city in the world? So the whole book is wrestling with this question, what do we do? And in my ministry experience, I have found that there's a whole lot of people that are in this world. They love Jesus, love the church, love the Word of God. And yet they have friends that engage in certain behaviors and they don't know to what extent they should do these things and still be faithful to Jesus. And so there's tension. You've either experienced this tension in your own life or you've got kids or grandkids or friends who are right in the middle of this tension. What do I do? In fact, uh, just yesterday, a girl who uh, grew up on Memorial Road, was in our campus ministry for many years, left for college. She came by to see me yesterday, and her, her story basically goes like this. She went to Oklahoma Christian, uh, had, a, had a very strong faith, went off, 
got a job in the coach and totally embraced the kind of secular lifestyle God thinks she shouldn't be getting into. When she came and saw me yesterday, she never used to cuss. She was cussing. And as we talked about kind of why she changed so much, one of the things that she said really caught my attention. She said, Phil, I'm really different now. My faith has changed. My morals have changed. I'm a different person. And the reason is, I can't relate to the people in the city where I was in unless I adopt this lifestyle. Now, a lot of people would say that that's a great argument. And what I would do is try to address to what extent should we engage in culture in order to reach culture? You know, Paul says in one of his letters, I become all things to all men so that I possibly mean I can say so. So a lot of people say, well, because Paul becomes all things, that means, well, sure, I should be able to adopt somewhat shady lifestyles in order to reach these people. It's a difficult question to know how far we should go. And Daniel is a great book to answer this question. In the city of Babylon, it's a great city to start with. The city of Babylon uh, was, was known for a lot of terrible, terrible things. So here's the background to this, this letter. Nebuchadnezzar just come into Israel and destroyed the, 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 the temple. He desecrated the land and he's starting to haul the people off to Babylon. So we read in, oh, I didn't even put me back up here. Or, or this is a great one more way to illustrate this tension. James 4 4. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That should say John. John 3.16, I missed that. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. So on one hand, you have a passage which says, God loves the world. On the other hand, you have a passage which says, if you are a friend of the world, you are an enemy of God. And so somewhere in the middle of these two sentences lies a lifestyle in which the contemporary Christian should live to engage the world today in a relevant way and so be faithful to the gospel. So, here's what we're going to have in Daniel chapter 1. Then we came to learn at the Mass. Um, let's see. I'll show you that screen. Then we came to learn at the Mass. He's chief of his court officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Among those who were chosen were from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So, Nebuchadnezzar is coming in. And, and part of the people he brings are Daniel and his friends. Now, scholars say that they're probably late teenagers or early 20s when they get to Babylon. And so, I mean, imagine their world. We think that it's a struggle today to be a Christian in what many people call post-Christian America. Well, imagine what it's like for them. They're trying to be Israelites so there's no more Israel. They're trying to follow God, but they don't really even have a home anymore. I mean, think about this. They're, they're used to a certain way of life. They're used to certain rituals. They're used to the Israelite calendar. They don't even have the Israelite calendar anymore. They're in Babylon. But there is no Sabbath day because Babylon doesn't operate in that mode of thinking. There is no temple. They can't offer sacrifices at the temple. So this is not like they're in the wilderness when, yeah, that's not the greatest situation, but at least you can somewhat still practice your faith even if you know you're in a dry, dark place, this is, we don't, it's totally opposite. How are you supposed to be the people of God, again, when you're, when you're removed from your home? And so that's what Daniel and his friends are trying to figure out. Child sacrifices rampant in Babylon. 
Pagan worship is everywhere. This is party city. This is polytheism central. And they've got to figure out what they're going to do. So generally, a few options are going to be option one will be there on the offense. Fight, picket, right, stand up with the beliefs in that way. Or they can go on defense and withdraw and deny the culture that is in front of them. So I want you to watch how the story plays out. Really interesting what happens when they get there. So verse 4 says, one of the king's officials, that's he, he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. So right when Daniel and his friends get to Babylon, they immediately are ushered into Babylon University. And because Babylon was such an influential culture of their day, archaeologists have actually discovered a substantial amount of information telling us what Babylon would have taught Daniel and his friends. So here's an example of things that would learned in Babylonian school. Uh, first of all, they would have taught the language class and learned the, the language of the day, which was a language called Akkadian. So they would have been fluent in the language of Babylonians. Secondly, it is very likely that they would have had classes in Babylonian literature containing or pertaining towards Babylon's uh, most, most famous practice of the day, which was divination. Archaeologists have found lots of documents telling us that the thing that Babylon did the most was they taught people how to study the stars and patterns of the stars and study uh, bird patterns. Uh, specifically, they would look at litters of sheep and they would take all this information and they would attempt to predict the future. Now, if that sounds really strange, you're thinking, no, 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 there's, there's no way that Daniel and his friends are going to learn that. That's, uh, think about this. They're in Babylon and they're learning from a Babylon professor. So it's very likely that these are the kinds of things that they're learning uh, based on this service of literature and the language of the Babylonian. Or another, another evidence which leads us to think that this probably happened is throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel is compared to the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers of the king. Now, even though he doesn't believe the way they do, that's his contemporaries. So it's very likely that he learned these things in the school of Babylon. Second thing that happened when Daniel and his friends were in Babylon is that the chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name of Shadrach, the name of Ayah Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. So not only do they have to go to Babylonian schools, they get their names changed into names from Babylon. Now this is where I would have said, well, you know, you can do a lot of things to me, but there's no way that you change my name, and yet they get Babylonian names. Here's the third thing that happens. They enter the king's service. So here's what they do. They actually get jobs in the Babylonian government. They are not just Israelite exiles, they become Babylonian bureaucrats. And our theologists also found documents which tell us what officials in the government did. They, they uh, collected taxes, they made judicial decisions, and they recruited for the military. That's in general what people in the Babylonian government did. And so day in, day out, the Daniel and his friends, born in Israelites, are now educated in Babylon with Babylonian names, working for the man that just burned down the temple. Very strange. Think about it that way. Two things fascinate me. 
from this chapter. The first thing that fascinates me is this. We find no indication that Daniel and his friends resist any of these things. They don't resist the name change. Uh, they don't skip classes when they're going to school, or at least the text doesn't tell us that. Uh, they don't get in arguments with their professors when obviously their professors would have been teaching these then things uh, in total contradiction to the Torah. The Bible doesn't say that there are any arguments. The Bible also does not say that they went on rights in their jobs, doesn't say they tried to assassinate the king. In fact, they got promoted in their jobs, which means they were doing a good job in the Babylonian government. That ought to mean that they did not resist. Now, the second thing that's fascinating to me, even more than the fact that they didn't resist this new world, is that God didn't punish them. Later in the book, God uh, punishes Bel- uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and then still in another place in the book, God punishes one of the other kings, but he does not punish Daniel and his friends for engaging in Babylonian culture. So here's what I want to suggest at the beginning of our time tonight that we might be able to learn from this. Culture in itself is not inherently evil. It is very easy to believe that everything bad in the world is all developed into one big bad word called culture, and that's something that we as Christians should not like. That's not necessarily the case in Daniel. Culture is simply the arts and the way of life and the practices for a particular people at a certain point in history. Now, here, here, here's what's really going on. There is always sin within culture. But culture itself is not sinful. And so if you ask the question, does this culture contain sin? Well, the answer would be yes. All cultures contain sin. But if you ask the question, is any culture itself sinful? Well, not necessarily. I think about the life of Jesus. Jesus went to weddings, he went to funerals, he went to parties, he went fishing, he paid his taxes. He was engaged in his culture. So, can we say safely that there are certain parts of Palestinian culture that are sinful? Yes. Would it be accurate to say that all of Palestinian culture was sinful in itself? No. Culture itself is not evil, but there are evil parts of any culture. So, one thing that Christians tend to do if they're not careful about is they become so appalled by certain things that happen in culture that they abandon it altogether. It would be that Daniel and his friends get to Babylon and they don't like what they're learning in the school, they don't like the language, they don't like the names, they don't like the jobs, and so they say, we can't do this, we're Israelites, we are reward-tied at all, we're done. But they don't do that. They realize that culture itself is not evil. Some of us are so afraid of contamination that we opt for inoculation. And doing that does not necessarily do any good for the world that we live in. You see, to retreat from culture just because you're afraid of it is to retreat from the creativity of God. Now, if you take this point that I'm suggesting at the beginning of this lesson out to its fullest extent, you get to a very dark, bad place. Because what you could say if you stop listening to the rest of my message, this is it. You just talk the first half. Anybody can leave the room and make this argument. Daniel and his friends embraced Babylonian culture. 
Therefore, I have the freedom to embrace any part of sinful culture in this country, in this city, because I want to reach this city. You can use this argument on the screen that culture is not inherently evil to justify immorality. That's what the girl in my office was doing yesterday. She was saying, no, I'm trying to reach people, therefore I'm going to adopt practices that I don't think God approves of because I want to reach these people. I'm not, not necessarily sure if that's the best way to think about this idea that culture is not inherently evil. Here's an example of that. In the 1920s, German nationalism was kind of tight. Uh, the country of Germany had just celebrated the 400-year uh, anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses on, on the door and, and uh, starting the, the, the Reformation movement. And so, Germans in the 1920s thought we were, were the best, were, were the best people in, in the world. And so, out of German nationalism came the movement of Nazis. Now, the Holocaust hadn't happened. Nazis didn't have the negative stigma that they do today. It was just a movement trying to um, just take pride in the country of Germany. Now, there were Christians at the time who loved the Bible and believed that God loved all races of people. Well, Christians, many thousands of Christians were asked to become Nazis. And so they were put in a very similar situation as Daniel and the Prince. We believe the Bible. We believe Jesus. We believe the all people are created equal, and yet Nazis and teens be holding up that Germans are somehow superior. So what are we to do? Well, Christians generally chose two different tracks. One uh, group of Christians says we can't adopt the ideals of Nazism because we believe they are a contradiction of Scripture, and so they did not become Nazis. But other Christians did. Can I put this on? Yeah. This, so this is the flag. DC stands for Deutsch. Uh, Cristiano, and that basically means uh, Christian Nazis. And so the second group of Christians decided that the only way we can reconcile this is we don't really agree with the principle of Nazism, but the culture's doing it. And so if we don't do, we're going to be ostracized. So the only thing that we can do is join. So that was their logic. And you might say, well, that's an extreme example. I would never become a Nazi. I would never become a racist. There's just no way I would ever do that. Well, I would argue back to that that the same logic which led Christians to embrace Nazism would be the same logic for me in my life which would lead me to embrace something like uh, materialism. Now, it's not as drastic that we would think of as sin, but think about it. The logic that caused Christians to embrace Nazism was very, very simple. The logic simply goes like this. Culture is embracing X. Therefore, if I don't embrace X, I will be drinking. And so we can think about life, we're a materialistic culture. And so if we are not materialistic, we're, we're on the, the outside, we're the framework. And so many times Christians adopt immoral principles because they're trying to fit in with culture. So fully embracing culture is not the best option either. So, so where, do we, kind of, where do we go from here? Well, I want you to look back at this story of Daniel, because Daniel and his friends do some really interesting things in the first few chapters. For example, Daniel 1 verse 8. Daniel, who has this Babylonian education, Babylonian language, Babylonian job, he resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. So here you find a clear line. 
Daniel said, you know what? I'm okay understanding the literature and your language, but I know that if I eat king's food, that's the same as accepting his lordship. I will not do that. I'm going to lie. And so yes, Daniel writes his culture, but here's the case where he says, no, I'm not going to cross that line. Chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're standing before this idol, this really big idol. King says, everybody needs to bow down. When the trumpets play, the trumpets play, everybody bows down except these three men. And you can see their silhouettes standing as everybody kneels down. And what do they say about that? They say, we will not serve their gods. And we will not worship the image of gold that you have set up. And if you remember later in the story, they say, even if we got even if we got we're not going to give up this standard. And so once again, you see, yes, they are in some way embracing the culture they live in, but in other ways, they have some really clear boundaries about what they value. They're not going to eat the king's food, and they're not going to bow down to that statue. Another example would be, oh, I don't know, a verse for this one, but another example would be Daniel's prayer life. Daniel prayed every day. King said, don't pray. Daniel says, no way. I'm going to keep praying. There's nothing you can do, King, to stop me from praying. And that's another boundary for him. So I'm not going to cross this line. And so what we find here is that Daniel and his friends fully embraced culture, but they did not fully embrace sinful culture. In fact, they were so committed to their values that they would rather walk into a lion's den or surrender a body to the flames than even flirt with something they knew would disappoint their God. So they were extremely convicted. So here's what we learned, kind of putting this all together. Were Daniel and his friends fully immersed in Babylonian culture? The answer to that, that would be yes. They knew the language, they were educated, they had jobs in the Babylonian government, they didn't live in denial, they didn't shy away from the culture around them. But were they corrupted by it? No. And so then the million-dollar question then is, how did Daniel and his friends engage Babylonian culture without being corrupted by it? Because that is the world we live in today. That's the tension that we have to figure out. How do we fully engage the world, fully engage the culture, fully engage the city without being corrupted by it? And here's what that is. This is the one thing that I want you to remember what these guys did. Their spiritual commitment preceded their cultural engagement. Same goes for you and I. If we ever hope to make a difference in the city, you have to live according to this principle. Your spiritual commitment has to come before your cultural engagement. And the order here is so important. I mean, think about Daniel and his friends. Do you think that Daniel decided, like, right then, when, when the food was coming out to be served, and it smelled really good, do you think it was just like a decision on the wind, like, ah, ah, maybe I shouldn't eat this shrimp from the king, maybe I wouldn't like that. That wasn't a momentary decision. That wasn't a knee-jerk reaction. Daniel was committed way before that. He had already decided that he would follow God way before King's food came out. Same as it's true that Jack Rabbi Shack and Vinegar on the idol. Do you really think that, that on that day the idol's up and the instruments start blowing and they kind of look at you and they go, oh, well, what should we do? Should we bash? Should we not bash? No, there's no question. Because they were already spiritually committed. That came first. Do you think Daniel waited until the law was passed before he wrestled with whether or not to pray? He was already going to pray. The spiritual engagement came way before the, the cultural 
engagement, and that's the only way that these guys were able to, to stand up around in Babylon. In other words, Daniel was committed in the lion's den because he was committed in the living room first. You see, there's a lot of talking about working with young people for seven years, and one of the common things that I would talk to about then, and their parents would be so upset about it, that they really wanted to engage that party lifestyle, and they would say, well, look, I'm just doing this for help my friends, and the video doesn't drive around, trying to get influence around those people, and I'm going after them, are the closest friends in your life Christians. And they said, no, they're not Christians. I would just say, you got it wrong. Jesus' was closest friend were his disciple, and because he was so committed there with those relationships, that gave him the authority to go out there and go into the world and, and love them. But if, but if you're not spiritually committed, first culture will eat you for lunch. Like it's over. Like there's no question. If it's not first, then you're going to be like the rest of my office yesterday. He, he can't handle culture. If you're not spiritually committed first. And that's what any one of his friends teach us. Culture's not bad. Culture's fine, but if you're not spiritually committed, it's over. You're done for. Some people want to engage the world, like I was just saying, but they don't have any commitments. They couldn't say no to temptation their life depended on it. And with those people, I, I just wonder, what, what are you doing? If you're trying to engage culture without being spiritually committed, it, it's just like spiritual suicide. It's over. Now, the reverse is also true. And this is a really important one. I want you to hear this. There are also some people who are extremely committed to God. People who really would give their lives in the fiery furnace of Jesus Christ. People who would go to the lion's den because of their belief system. And yet these people will not engage culture because they're scared. And I would argue that it is those kinds of people who are the very ones who should engage culture. Culture must be engaged by spiritually committed people, so it does the church no good if the only way that committed people engage culture is to complain about it to each other. The church I worship at is not a perfect church. We have a lot of strengths, we have a lot of weaknesses, and sometimes one thing that bothers me is it seems that we have more people complaining about part of the culture they don't like rather than engaging that culture in the name of Jesus Christ. See, there's hundreds of people at the church I work at. Those are the committed Christians that need to be out in the world. I don't want my, my waffling teenagers and my waffling college students out there in culture because that culture is going to eat it for lunch. People that I don't have in culture are the people who can stand up and know that, that no matter what happens, their faith is not going to be affected. We need spiritually committed people to go to those difficult places in the city and do something in the name of Jesus Christ because if it's not the committed people doing it, who's going to do it? It has to be the committed Christians. And we can't sit around and just complain about it. It doesn't do anything. You see, the irony is Committed people tend to withdraw. That's a bad idea. Uncommitted people tend to engage. That's terrible. But do you know what happens when spiritually committed people practice intentional cultural engagement? I'll tell you what happens. Culture begins to transform. 
Look what happened in the story of Daniel. Look what happened in the city of Babylon. Daniel chapter 6, verse 25. After Daniel and the other lines, and King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language on the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. The whole culture changed. And it wasn't because Daniel and his friends held a poster board against something they didn't like. Wasn't because they rioted. Wasn't because they passed around chain email the things they despised towards people just like them. It's because in simple ways they were spiritually committed people who stood up in a culture. That's all they did. They just stood there in the middle of sinful culture and said, I'm still going to believe in Jesus. Not going to eat that food. Not going to bow down your idol. Still going to pray. That's all they did. They just stood where they were as spiritually committed people in a dark world and culture transformed because of them. You see, the thing, the one thing that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world is that Christianity is cultureless. There's no defining culture in Christianity. And that's different from any other religion. Uh, talk about Islam. The center of Islam would be the city of Mecca, where it finds its culture. Buddhism finds its culture in India, that's where it centers. Judaism finds its culture in Israel, because the geographical center is there. Think about Christianity. There is no geographical location for Christianity from which the culture is derived. It started in Jerusalem, that was the center of Christianity. 480 it moved to Rome. A few hundred years later, the center of Christianity moved to Europe. In the 1800s, the of Christianity moved to America. And even in the last 30, 40 years, mythologists are suggesting that the center of Christianity is moving away from North America into Africa and Asia with missionaries from those places now coming to visit the United States to deal with the Africanic culture here. So what I'm saying is that Christianity culture less. And so what that means is that the beauty of Christianity is that it is designed to transform whatever culture it finds itself in. So it originated in Jewish culture and says, you know what? Christianity can change Judaism to make Judaism the greatest thing it can be. So we don't just have Judaism, we now have Jewish Christians. Well then the big question of the New Testament is, well, 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 can we have a culture that's not Jewish, that's still Christian? And you read through all Paul's letters and answer, yes. Christianity is big enough to go outside Judaism, and now we can embrace these Gentiles and make have another culture that's Christian. And over and over and over through the centuries, Christianity has traveled the world and transformed cultures into the greatest that they could be. See, Christianity does not eradicate culture. Christianity transforms culture into the best that it could possibly be. So one, one story to illustrate that point, and then I'll, I'll wrap it up. I did a wedding about a year or year and a half ago, and, and uh, at the reception, the groom's father said a prayer. And the groom's father, it was funny to me, it's kind of strange, he showed up late to the wedding, and he was Native American. Very tall man, and it looked just like you would picture a Native American from, from a movie. You know, broad chest, broad shoulders, long, uh, jet black hair coming down to his 
waist, broad nose, tan skin, narrow eyes. And he walks into this reception and he grabs a microphone and he asks everybody to bow in prayer. And he begins praying, and the first probably two to three minutes of his prayer was just like any other prayer to be ever hear from a from just a Christian. Dear God, be it so, 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 bless my son's marriage. And, and then at a certain point in the middle of prayer, he changed. And actually, really kind of freaked me out because what he did is he starts chanting in his Native American language. And I'm like, kind of opening my eyes, thinking, I'm like, what is happening around here? Is it like we're like, speaking in tongues? Like, I don't know what is going on here. I'm really uncomfortable. I, I'm personally uncomfortable with it. So he does that for a minute, and then he switches back to English, and they end the prayer. So later that day, I, I pulled the room aside, because I don't know the, the father, and I, I just said, you've got to tell me what happened during that prayer. And I don't know what he said. He said, well, my family comes from generations and generations of Native Americans. And for you know, centuries, my ancestors worshipped Mother Earth, and we worshipped spirits who were kind of a pantheistic, uh, uh, we, we, it was a pantheistic religion. He said, but, and there were missionaries in, in, in centuries ago coming and trying to get us to be Christians, but we, we always, my, my, my ancestors would always say, oh, always say, oh well, we don't want that. But then the group said, about 50, 60 years ago, some missionaries came into my tribe, and they were approaches. And they came in, and instead of saying, you need to stop being Native Americans and start being Christians, they said things like, so I see that you worship the creator of Earth. Well, let me tell you that it's his name is Yahweh, and there's one, and he made the whole world. And he made the very ritual that he practiced as Native Americans. And he actually sent his son Jesus to come in and bring the people to relationship with the Creator God. And so these really smart missionaries have come in, and instead of trying to rob them of their culture, instead they said, you know what, Jesus can make you all the greatest Native Americans ever. That was their niche. And so 50 years ago, these Native Americans who for centuries have said, no, we don't want Jesus, we don't want Jesus, we don't want Jesus, finally said, we want Jesus. And so now this group and whole family has become Christians. Now they're Native American Christians. They believe in Jesus. They believe in God. They believe in the Bible. They believe so many of the things that you would believe, but they were brought in their culture. And he told me that story and I was so convicted because sometimes in my life I think that everybody in the world needs to become a white, Anglo-Saxon, European person to be a Christian. That's not the case. Christianity is cultureless. And so our job is to engage the culture we find ourselves in in the name of Jesus Christ. See, San Antonio has its own culture. And Muhammad Park is here at this time in this place for one reason, and that is to bring the name of Jesus into this city. Not to tell everybody that you're going to change everything about your life, just to say the sinful parts about your life do need to change, but you can keep your culture. Because Jesus is not opposed to culture. I'll end with one of my favorite verses from, from Revelation, talking about the city of God coming down at the end of time. And if you remember all that imagery there, the streets of gold, and, and it's just this emerald, it's just amazing imagery in Revelation 21. But there's one particular line which I think really, really captivates me. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. 
sitting God in time. The way I imagine that in my mind is that the greatest parts of every culture in the history of the world will be there in heaven. They're going to be there in the new world. Because God is not against culture. He loves culture. But he's waiting for Christians to be spiritually engaged first. Spiritually committed first. And then to engage their culture. So my question that I leave you with is, at this point in your life, do you feel like God is calling you to commit to Him? Or do you think God is calling you to engage this city? Thank you.